This is the message given by Pastor Peter Sim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for January 15th, 2023. The title of the message is King David's Greater Sin. It's always a blessing and a joy to come bring God's Word uh, to all of you, and so uh, it's great to see you here. Um, why don't we turn to Second Samuel, Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, and it's a long passage. We're going to read through read through verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. The public reading of God's word. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon. And came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. 
and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Well, when I was here a couple weeks ago, we looked at Second uh, Samuel 15. And in doing so, we saw the great sin of David by taking Bathsheba to be his unlawfully wedded wife by the killing of his dear friend slash advisor slash valiant warrior, right? Um, Uriah, thank you. Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's former husband. Uh, and so we, we saw that play out last time. Uh, and today, as we come into our passage, uh, it, it, once again, we're looking at one of uh, David's sin. And, and I would argue that this sin is actually much worse than uh, what he did against Uriah the Hittite and against Bathsheba. Uh, and, and what I want to do is I want to unpack this and really get at the heart of what David has done here. Now, the way the passage starts off, right, in chapter 24, verse 1, uh, it says that the anger of the Lord kindles against Israel. Now, that, that phrasing, the way it's put, the way we're introduced to this chapter, the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. Immediately when we hear this, it ought to make us go, oh, wait a minute, I've heard this before. I've heard this language of the Lord, uh, the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. Now, you might think, oh, when, when did the Lord, when did his anger kindle against Israel? Well, it's not so much the Lord against Israel as much as it reminds us of 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against that fictitious man. In other words, immediately, as soon as you hear the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel, we're immediately beginning to think, oh, yeah, just like David's, the anger of David kindled against that man. And as soon as we hear that, we're thinking about, ah, Nathan confronting David. Why did Nathan confront David? Well, it's because David, and we think about his sin with Uriah and with Bathsheba. This, is, this chapter is taking us back to David's sin. right? And, and, and that's a sin, I think, that it's most famous. And this sin tends to get forgotten. But this is the sin that brings really to an end first and second Samuel. Right? First and second Samuel, you have this two-volume work. And, and we call it first and second Samuel, but really it's almost it's, it's it's really one book. One book, two volumes. And so the conclusion to that entire book is David's sin and his repentance. Today is really the focus of his sin. Um, if I come again next time, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I, I actually mentioned about Genesis 3, but uh, perhaps we'll, we'll take a look at David's repentance. Um, but here with David's sin, again, we're thinking about what he did at that time against Bathsheba and against Uriah. And uh, remembering again that Uriah is, is, he's one of those guys that, that sacrificed his life for years protecting David and that David could do in his friend like this, could, could really sacrifice uh, this man who spent his life protecting him. Uh, to be able to do that, it, it's, it's really shocking. And it really uh, gives us a different angle of what David uh, and what his sin uh, did here. 
Uh, but a little bit more, uh, look at chapter 23, verse 39, right? Chapter 23, verse 39, uh, what do we see there? What's, what's the last, uh, sort of the, the, the last sentences that we have there? Um, as I turn over there right now, uh, we see it with verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, right? Uriah the Hittite. So immediately with Uriah the Hittite, uh, it, it, it brings to attention this chapter is about the sin that David has done. And again, why would I consider the sin here far more grievous, far more uh, impactful? Well, what do we see happen at the end of our story here, at the end of the passage? 70,000 men die as a result of David's sin. Whereas when we're looking at 2 Samuel 12 with, with Uriah and Bathsheba, it's that one family. And, and not to say that that family, and, and to marginalize and dismiss that family, but when you think about the 70,000 people in the kingdom that were uh, harmed because of David's sin, right? we see the impact of that. Uh, we see just how far worse in that sense uh, the, um, uh, the impact that David has here. Uh, and so as, as we look at this and, and we see what, what's happening, uh, we're also mindful of the fact in the next chapter with Chronicles, what, what happens here, or, or Kings, uh, what happens here is David is going to, do you guys know what happens to David in the next chapter? If you turn over, you will see David is going to die. And so when we look at this passage with 2 Samuel 24, what's happening here for us is that David is in his old age. David's in his old age. He's in the twilight of his life as king, and yet God is still dealing with David. God is still dealing with David. God is still exposing David and the sins and what is happening and, and, and what's in his heart. God is still working in the life of David to the very end. I think that's sometimes a very hard thing for us to consider because we think, ah, as soon as retirement hits, we, we, we tend to think, okay, I'm, I'm done with my job. I'm done with church. I'm, I'm, I'm done with God in a sense. And we think retirement is all about, ah, my free time. I've worked towards this my entire life. Uh, some of you younger ones, right? Uh, perhaps you're taught from a very early age, what's the purpose of going to school? Okay, get good grades. Why do you want to get good grades? Because you want to go to a good college. Why do you want to go good? You want to get a good job. Why do you want to get a good job? Because you want to make a lot of money. Why do you want to make a lot of money? Because ultimately then, so you can retire, not at 65, but you have all these young people now, oh, I retired at 50. Oh, I retired at 35. Oh, look at me. And, and, and there's this whole entire thing about retiring so that I can now be free to do what I really want. And many times it's without God in the picture. Whereas we see here, David, even at his old age, God is dealing with these issues that plague David. And we're going to uh, unpack a bit. What is this great sin uh, that David has done? What is it that David, as soon as he realizes what he's done, he falls to his knees and he repents? So what exactly is it that David has done that's so bad? What is this idol in the heart of David? Well, what does he do? He takes a census. <gasps> Are census bad? Right? Um, 
But what does he do? He, by taking a census, he's essentially, what he wants to do is he wants to count his military personnel. Right? He wants to count how many people are able to fight. And, and this is part of the changing um, culture within Israel that there's now a standing army. Whereas before, it's, it's more voluntary. you got uh, kind of folks that are willing to fight. But now you have this standing army, and David wants to count. Who's willing to fight? Who's willing to uh, go into battle? He wants to understand this. And, and so, again, we kind of think about that. It's like, is that really such a bad thing? What's interesting is that First Chronicles 21 gives us the same story. But instead of saying God incited David, we're told Satan moved David's heart to take the census. It's like, now a lot of people look at this, oh, see, 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 here's another contradiction in the Bible, right? The Bible can't be trusted. No. Uh, we see an example of this, for instance, like in Job, right, where uh, Satan wants to do something and, and he's asking God for permission. Uh, and, and so in the same way, this is all part of God's uh, sovereign uh, act, as David, obviously, this is attributed to God, but we see that uh, with First Chronicles explaining that Satan moved David to take the census. So this census was not a good thing. It's not a good thing. But we still don't have a very clear sense of why taking the census is so bad. Right? From verse 9, uh, you have Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So uh, really what you're talking about in the kingdom of Israel, in the north and the south, you put it together, you have 1.3 million soldiers. David wants to know. Got 1.3 million soldiers ready to go to war. Well, it's interesting that God actually has, in a previous time, he has Moses take a census. And so we have to see that, oh, okay, a census isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because Israel, after the exodus from Egypt, right, through the Red Sea, God calls all the Israelites together at Mount Sinai. And what he does is that's at that time where he formalizes that relationship with Israel, right? Israel, um, you are now a nation under my care. I'm, I'm making a covenant with you. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, think of it almost like a wedding service that God and Israel is undergoing, uh, and so, like, the, all the people uh, are sprinkled with blood, and, and uh, you can almost think of it as the exchanging of vows and, and wedding rings. Uh, this is what's taking place, Exodus 19, right? And, and this is just before the Ten Commandments are even given in Exodus 20. So you have this entire uh, relationship being formalized. It's not just a bunch of families that are running rogue, but, but now it's a nation of people. And then God says to Moses, take a census. Take a census. Uh, when you get to Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, uh, you have a further description of the census being taken by Moses. But you see a further details of this census being done. And the further details is this. A sum of money had to be paid to Yahweh for anyone that was numbered. Right? So it's kind of like this idea that if you're numbered, you're numbered, you're numbered, you've got to give... Um, a shekel for that person, right? And then you offer it up to God. And what's interesting is that shekel that is being offered up for that person. So, I mean, here, I don't know how many people, but let's just say like 30, 
I, I can't count like this. Uh, but we'll say like 30. Uh, 30 shekels would be given. Right? 30 shekels would be given. And that shekel that would be given was actually called a ransom. But if you translate it a little bit differently, it could actually mean atonement, atonement money. So every person that's counted, a shekel is given in offering to God as someone where you're saying, this person belongs to you, God. And this payment is being made on behalf of the person. So it's not just that you have to count the person, but you also have to take, you can almost think of it like, like this offering, right? That this monetary offering, this atonement money that is being given to God uh, because God, you rescued this person out of Egypt. And this atonement money is being given for every single one of these people. Now, why would God require something like this? Well, the census was meant to remind God's people that God paid a ransom. God paid a ransom for them. And so if you belong to God, it means that God paid for you. God paid for you. Right? It's a reminder that you were once in bondage, that you were once a captive, but God paid the price to release you, to free you. And so there is a freedom that you have. You now belong to God and you are now in relationship with God. That's what that atonement money was meant to symbolize and meant to remind the people you belong to him. You don't belong to Egypt. You don't belong to uh, Asherah, to Baal. You don't belong to any of those gods, to Ra'ah. You don't belong to any of those Egyptian gods. You belong to Yahweh. And that atonement money was to remind the people that. And when you took a census, it was a way to collectively, all the people, they think, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm counted. I'm being counted amongst those that God bought. See, in this sense, I want you to be encouraged because uh, I think sometimes we get uh, bogged down by uh, maybe the details in, in ecclesiastical stuff. And, and what I mean by that is uh, roles, right? You, you think about the role calls in church and like, oh, uh, we, we have to clean up our role books and, and, and who belongs to the church. And we think about all that. And I want you to understand why do we do some of those things? It's because things like the census that was taken was partly to say, hey, you belong to the Lord. Your name is counted here. Right? There's that beautiful uh, hymn, uh, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Right? It's a way to remind us that, ah, by God's grace, I belong to him. He paid for me. I belong. So with that census, you have to understand, it ultimately emphasizes God's grace to the people. That census that was taken was to remind the people that God's grace purchased them and they now belong to to the Lord. In our passage, anything like that at all? There's nothing like that. See, David doesn't take atonement money for any of the people that's being counted. See, we get no indication that David's even thinking about this. Right? There's no sense whatsoever that David is mindful of God's grace. There's no sense that God or, or that David is remembering God's mercies. And so, no atonement money. And if there's no atonement money, then what we're left with is a plague striking Israel. See, what gets interesting also is that when you hear the word plague uh, striking Israel, in verses 21 and 25, this word plague is actually used that reminds us of the plague back in when? 
in Egypt, right? Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, the 10 plagues where Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so Israel now suffers a three-day plague. And so the passage is getting us again to think about the exodus of of being rescued away, of of being freed from the bondage of of sin, the bondage of Pharaoh, the bondage of slavery, uh, being freed from all of this by God's grace. They were delivered. They were ransomed. They were purchased. They were bought. But in our passage with David, there's no indication And instead, what is David doing then? If it's not about celebrating God's mercies, of celebrating God's grace, of being reminded of God purchasing his people to take account of all the great mercies of God, if that's not the reason, then what is the reason for counting 1.3 million soldiers at his beck and call? What reason could there possibly be? Well, David sings against this kind of David sings about this kind of stuff actually in a couple different places. So for instance, in Psalm 20, verses 7 through 9. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. I mean, it's pretty clear that David in Psalm 20, it's pretty clear he understands. Hey, you know what? Some kings. They're celebrating, right? The chariots and the horses, the soldiers, they're celebrating those things. They're trusting in those things. But I know where my trust is. My trust is in the Lord. I mean, he's singing about this. He knows better. But apparently in his older age, he's forgotten. Psalm 33, verses 16 through 22. The king is not saved by his great army. Hello? A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Again, David is always singing about trusting in the Lord, of of, of putting his, his faith in God, that he is his great protector. But as 2 Samuel comes to an end, as his life is coming to an end, we see him taking the census without the atonement money acting a lot more like Pharaoh in this instance. A hardened heart like Pharaoh. David's desire is not to remember God's mercies on all the people, but instead for David to boast in his ability to have uh, raised up such an army who could draw the sword, enamored by the strength of his power. And again, Think about at this age in his, in his life, as he's coming to, uh, towards the end of his life. What do we, not that I'm that old, but uh, what do we tend to do? Uh, you think about at, at a young age, you're, you're willing to hustle. You're willing to grind. You're willing to do what it takes. And you're just uh, so enthusiastic to do all this work. When you come to uh, around my age, you start thinking midlife crisis, right? And, and you start thinking, oh, what, where am I? Where am I? And then as you get older, when everything's been done and accomplished, we tend to reflect back on our life. We start to think, what have I done in life? You start to sit back, 
Start to look around you, look at all that you've done. And if you've done really well, ah, look at what I've accomplished. And again, there's, there's a sense where that's not necessarily bad. Just like the senses, it's not bad in and of itself. It's not bad to reflect upon what has been accomplished in your life. But what's the problem? David uses that as an occasion to say, look at what I've done, as opposed to acknowledging, look at what God has done in my life through me to bring this about. See, it could be the exact same thing that we're doing, but where's our heart in that? On the one hand, your heart can be one where it is reliant upon God, but on the other hand, you're looking at the exact same event, but your heart is boastful in what you've accomplished. See, what's the real problem here? David is absolutely prideful. Looking at the exact same thing, or looking at at, uh, this army, looking at the people, looking at all these things that he's done. And it's very easy for us to be enamored with ourselves. See, the real issue with the senses, and and I could have just started off and said, oh, it's an issue of pride. Yes, it, it, it is. But what I want us to understand is how we get there is that David is looking at the people. But rather than be enamored with God's grace, he's enamored with himself. See, and that's really what the issue of pride is, that look at what I've accomplished. Things go well in your life. You look at that and you say, you know what, it's... Really simple. It's because I worked harder than everyone, right? We go back to that kind of that 20-year-old self where I hustled. I did much better than the people around me. I worked smarter than the other people. I was more ethical than the other people. I gave glory to God better than the other people, right? And you start to look at all those good things that we have in life, and we start to, suddenly we start saying, you know what, look at all these good things that God has done, and then suddenly I deserve them. Pride starts to look at life in a very deep sense of, I'm owed these things. I'm owed these good things. Pride takes many, very, uh, many different forms, and it works in a life that has worked hard, that has done good things, but suddenly we start saying to ourselves, I'm owed these things, I deserve these things, I've done it with my bare hands, my blood, my sweat, my tears. And therefore, we start to look at other people. We start to say, I'm better than those people around me. They deserve those bad things. I deserve these good things. But what happens as soon as it doesn't quite work out the way we think it's going to work out, and we start to say, wait a minute, God. Why are all these bad things happening to good people? Right? Because we feel like, God, you owe me. When I start to suffer a little bit more than the other people around me, they deserve it, but I don't deserve that. I deserve a better life. I'm owed a better life. And so whether things are going well or things are not going so well, it's very easy for us to allow pride to become very, very full in our hearts. I deserve better than what I am getting. Or look at what I've done by my hands. And it's this idea of what I've accomplished. And so I'm getting what I deserve or I'm not getting enough of what I deserve. But either way, it's both filled with pride. And it's because of David's pride, we see this plague falling upon the land, upon the people, all because of their king. 
Right? What's, again, what's fascinating is that as David says, let's take a, a census here. Who actually says, is this a good idea? You really want to do this? Joab. Now, the reason why I bring up Joab, if you know Joab, Joab is not a good guy. Job is not a good guy. And so think in, that, think in that sense. If there's someone who is spiritually dense as Joab telling you, I don't think this is a good idea, you really need to stop and pause and think, wait a minute, maybe he's got a point here. right? But again, sometimes our pride becomes so full and it swells up inside of us that even a Joab, a, a person like Joab who warns us, we're still dense to that. And again, it, it, it sort of continues this, um, this idea that, that David himself was dense, as we saw back in 2 Samuel 12, and now here in 2 Samuel 24, David's pride has caused him to become so dense. Right? Our hearts can be so full, so deceptive, that uh, oftentimes we say to ourselves that, I know what's best for me. Do you? Do you really know what's best for you? Right? That's actually a point that Paul Tripp makes in his book, uh, Lead, talking about uh, church officers. Many times as church officers, yes, I know, um, you know, as an officer of the church, as a pastor, as an elder, as a deacon, like, you, you think in that sense, but uh, we can become so enamored that, that we forget that, wait a minute, um, we think we know what's best, but maybe that's not always the case. And we have to be very, very careful. And we see that, I think, with, with David here, becoming so full of himself, that he is unable to even uh, see that as Job of all people, or Joab of all people, tell him, no, I don't think this is a good idea, David. But because David does this, we see the effect of his sin and how it, it, it just completely destroys all these lives around us. When you think about, again, even our own ambitions, our own pride, how blinded we can become as we become boastful and full of ourselves, we fail to realize the effect that it has on people even around us. Right? Rather than acknowledging the mercies and grace of God, we become, again, full of that pride and we fail to recognize just how bad things can get. There's a sense where our actions can affect so many people, devastating so many lives. It can be brutal against people. Right? And what we like to say, it's my life, I'll deal with it, it's my problem, you got your problems, I got my problems. Hey, you're, you do you. I don't know if I'm a little bit older, but, but you do you. Hey, I got my life, you're not the boss of me. Malcolm in the middle fans, right? Um, You're not the boss of me. You do you. I'm going to take care of what I'm going to take care of. I'm going to take care of my own. But we fail to realize and recognize the effect of our pride, of our sin, of of its grave effect on other people. People are coming to us and and warning us. As, as, As we think about that, And we realize, uh, ultimately then, where David does come to repentance, but it's not before he he sees that because of my, it's my household that that brought this about. Punish me. Do not punish the people. But as much as David pleads for that, it doesn't work. (coughs) 
And in this sense, we even get a clearer picture that with David, it doesn't work with David. But again, thank God that it does work with the son of David. Because with the son of David, we think about another king, right? It's not even going to be with Solomon. It's not going to be with any of these others. But it's ultimately going to come with the true son of David, with Jesus, where his life, the effect that his life has on all of us, right? It affects you and me. And because of his pride, no, but he is humble to the point of death, the very opposite of what David did. And, and rather than being affected where, where uh, when you think about what Jesus had to go through, he was humble to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? This is Philippians 2. And because of that humility, because of that um, humbling himself, Rather than us receiving the punishment of what we deserve, rather than receiving uh, the punishment of, of what we're given through Adam, you know, going all the way back there. Instead, what do we get? We get the righteousness of Christ. We get that forgiveness. We receive, through Jesus, the kingdom of God. Because he humbled himself, rather than becoming prideful, he humbled himself. And what he did was he came down into this world, dying on a cross for our benefit. I mean, this is what this king does, right? He describes himself as the servant king. He's not a king who says, uh, I want to be served, but rather I come to serve. And as this humble king, as you think about this, and, and you realize and understand the characteristic of humility, and, and you'll have um, historians who will describe, uh, especially during ancient times, the, the characteristic of humility. Because we hear it a lot, I think, in church, right? We hear, oh, we got to be humble. And, oh, he's such a humble guy. Oh, she's such a, a, a sweet person. She's so humble. We, we hear that uh, language and we get so used to it and we think, oh, that, that's just something we should always have. But I want you to understand that the characteristic of humility has never been accepted as a good quality. Humility is not a good thing, actually, when you, when you think about it, uh, at, at least according to the world that is. right? In, in, in ancient society, Roman society, being humble was not a good thing. You had to exert yourself. You had to be proud. You had to show uh, and, and, and describe yourself as someone, I can get things done. Look at what I've accomplished. I mean, that's the way to advance in life. That's the way to uh, really project yourself. That's what you're called to do. The idea of being humble, not so much. And yet, rather than, Je you see what Jesus says, rather than uh, boast and say, look at what I've accomplished, oftentimes you see, you see him being silent. You don't see him addressing certain things. Instead, again, he's humble to the point of even death, even death on a cross. And that humility then, when we think about this is the life of Jesus, why was he humble? Why was he not prideful uh, the way David was? Because, again, Jesus had every reason to boast and say, look at what I've done. I've done all the, and yet he doesn't say that. Rather, in that humility of humbling himself, of coming to serve, of, of again, imagine not so much imagine, but, but remember that scenario with John 13 where Jesus strips himself of all of his clothes, comes uh, onto his knees, and starts washing the feet of his disciples, of servants. And again, feet, crusty feet. 
that is uh, dirtied all throughout. And I'm sure you've heard sermons and, and, and read things about uh, that situation where Jesus is willing to humble himself in the washing of the feet, even the feet of whom? Judas. Judas. The humility that Jesus exerts, even washing the feet of Judas. You think about there are so many people probably in our lives, maybe people in church, maybe people in the room, maybe people sitting on the other side of the aisle, that you think to yourself, ooh, the idea of humbling myself to serve that person. I shudder at the thought. But thank God that this isn't the actions of our king. Rather than shuddering at the thought, he was eager to come into this world to save you, to save me, humbling himself in such a manner so that now that characteristic that was never thought of as a good thing suddenly becomes one of the great qualities of his people. So that you and I, rather than boasting in what we've accomplished with our hands, what we're willing to say is this is what Christ has done. Christ in me, Christ through me. And so I, when, I, when we interact even with one another, as I see you, I see what Christ is doing through you and in you. And we start relating to one another in that manner. Right? We're, that, that we see God at work and, and we're more than glad where, where Paul himself will say, I boast in the cross of Christ. What else am I going to boast in? And again, you have to understand, Paul is the greatest mind of his civilization. At, at that time, he, he, equivalent of, and I'll, I'll say it this way, well, I guess your pastor came out of Harvard. So, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of someone coming out of Harvard, coming out of Cambridge, Oxford, right? A Rhodes Scholar uh, with Fulbright scholarships all over the place. Like, like that kind of guy. That's Paul. And yet, what does he say? There's nothing else that I'm going to boast in than the cross of Christ and what Christ has done. David, realizing that, ultimately comes to repentance. When we think about ourselves and we think about, again, our actions and, and, and the way we interact with one another, that willingness to humble ourselves. Right? C.S. Lewis describes humility isn't thinking of yourself less, but thinking of yourself less often. Right? We, like, am I humble? And, and we become so focused upon us. Am I doing this enough and, and that enough? Am I serving enough? And, and our whole life is just suddenly revolving around me. But rather, it's about not thinking about me and my needs, right? That great unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. But rather, understanding our, the giving of ourselves for the Lord, for his work, and recognizing it is him that is going to accomplish all these things. Truly, as Paul said, there's nothing else to boast except the cross of Christ. And so with that in mind, may that humility be the characteristic of this congregation. May the humility of Christ be characteristic in all of you, a willingness to humble yourselves, to serve the king, and to serve his subjects. In everything we do, in all that we say, in all that we think, in all of our actions. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that as we're reminded of uh, Christ as the king humbling himself to the point of even death, even death on a cross, 
whereas we deserve that great punishment of our sins, we receive instead the great righteousness of Jesus Christ, the great blood of Jesus forgiving us of our sins. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, that we have been forgiven, that we have been accepted, that we are beloved. And so here we have a congregation located in Long Beach, beloved by you, the apple of your eye, And we ask, oh God, that as you've brought them together, even this evening in the rain, uh, but even as you have located them here in Long Beach, may they be a congregation that that desires more than anything else. Uh, And taking upon that quality, that characteristic of humility, uh, that this is a church as as a light to this community, as a light to this world. Um, A church that is humble. A church that is... Uh, that brings glory to you through that humility, a quality that this world looks at and despises. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, that you would grant uh, to this church a desire to to really see the kingdom expand, to really see many come to faith, uh, that uh, she would be a witness in Long Beach, that many would come to know Christ, come to confess faith in Christ, Uh, that Long Beach would be the hands and the feet of Christ. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.